91. It's been a while. It's been a while since I have come back to the airwaves, but I am enjoying these last few weeks. It's been uh, a little trying here in the United States of America. What can you say? It is very interesting time during COVID. You know, just a couple months ago, it seemed like everything was going great. We were getting vaccinations. Everybody seemed to be wanting to get vaccinated, and uh, it turned out not to be the case. And so we are now in a difficult circumstance, depending where you live, of course. I think a lot of places, primarily in the South, in, in rural areas, there's a lack of trust I would say it's just politics, but I think uh, it goes deeper than that. People do not believe in the vaccines and it being effective, and then they go into the internet, and then they read from their Facebook uh, to, uh, friends, and they read comments from their Facebook friends that say that the virus is not effective, that it's if you've already had the virus, there's no point in getting the vaccine. And so everything that I know right now, it seems like... None of that is true, but it doesn't matter if I tell them that. It's not going to change anything, right? It's an interesting study on truth. What is it? Who holds it? I don't think there's any one person that can hold truth. I mean, I think that would be pretty dangerous. So on this episode of Collateral Banter, I, I want to go from that conversation about COVID to a very interesting story that did not get nearly as much attention as I think it deserved. And I wanted to go back to early June. I remember reading this article about a military-grade autonomous drone attack that apparently happened in March of 2020 in Libya and uh, it was used by the Libyan uh, government against uh, a rebel group. It seems like it was the first autonomous drone. And so apparently the government of National Accord was fighting uh, forces aligned with General Khalifa Aftar. I think what's most interesting in, in this is that from, from my gathering of information here, this is the first time that an autonomous drone has gone out and attacked and killed people. I love the initials of it. It's called LAWS. Apparently, the drone was made by a Turkish company. Turkey's been investing heavily in the drone market. It's an interesting fact that Turkey is now involved in drone warfare. It's, it's really actually a smart investment in uh, Erdogan's part, uh, it's it's wise investment. It, it seems like this is going to be a, a tool of the future for armies. And so Turkey wants to invest heavily in it. Really, right now, it's dominated by China, Israel, the United States, and Turkey is number four. So, and of course, other countries have uh, drone programs, but I think the, those are the four major drone programs, all of which have 
multiple capabilities. Drones don't necessarily have to kill. Those are programmed to kill. But from my understanding of what laws did is that it's using artificial intelligence to go out and target uh, soldiers. I mean, what does that make everybody think of? Obviously, like Terminator is is the one that comes to mind. But it is here. And of course, uh, we forget it because, well, how many crises are on top of crises right now, right? So who can keep track of all of these things going on at the same time? And the fact that this integration of big data and artificial intelligence and integrating that into weapons of war is definitely going to be something that the governments uh, uh, utilize in the future. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Just yesterday, so I'm recording this on Saturday, uh, August 28th, but just uh, yesterday night, I remember seeing that the United States uh, executed a planner for ISIS-K in Afghanistan by drone, right? So uh, again, this is, this is the uh, future weapon of war. And uh, nobody should be surprised by it, but I think it did not get nearly enough attention uh, in the mainstream media because of the implications of what this of the implications of what this says is that in the future you could just create weapons programmed to kill them certain people, and then the drones could just be flying uh, overnight and uh, striking your enemies without you actually having to tell it who to kill really changes, I think, uh, a lot of the rules about war. I'm fascinated by this, but terrified at the same time that uh, what's the possibility that non-nation states get a hold of such technology, very likely, and then they can use it to cross over borders and target certain individuals they don't like that they saw attended a rally or were protesting something or of a certain country or you can create so many scenarios here that would be so dangerous for states because all of a sudden if a drone does an attack in your country then does the government for example have to retaliate and who does it retaliate against and so it's sort of to me it's the democratization of war there you go that's gonna be the name of the episode democratization of war but people should go back if you haven't read about this uh Go and go and check out several articles. It was on NPR and many different um, news sites were covering it. So I thought that was a really interesting story over the past uh, two months. That yes, drone warfare is here without actually having to have somebody pilot them. I wanted to go on and and discuss recent changes in Poland that I found really interesting. So in Poland, there is a uh, a vote that happened recently where the government is looking to change some of the rules for uh, foreign ownership of news broadcasting stations. So there's a, a TV station called TVN24, the, an American company, I think is Discovery, owns it. And essentially, the new law is being passed to force this company, uh, the Discovery Channel, to sell TV, TVN24 to Polish investors. The goal is to have them sell to Polish investors. So 
the government can begin to put pressure on these investors because this is the one remaining news source that, from what I can tell, is independent of the far-right government in Poland. I find that to be a really fascinating development that, you know, very much like all the other authoritarian governments that I've talked about on this podcast, specifically Hungary, but other ones can really, they really understand how to control the narrative. And by controlling the narrative, you control voters and thus you control your own power, right? So their first attack, not usually the media, but maybe it's the judiciary, electoral laws, and then judges, that usually is the first one. But media is there as well, right? And so going after an oppositional media is an important step about consolidating power and maintaining that power. I actually think it's, actually think it's about weakness because what are you afraid of to have one oppositional news source available? Why would you be afraid of that? But it is the reality in Poland. So from my understanding, the law did pass the lower par- parliament 228 to 216, and now it'll go to the Senate, and it won't pass there, but but uh, in Poland's laws, it can they can have a revote in the lower house of parliament, and the law can pass. And it would force the majority ownership of TV, TVN24, which is majority owned by Discovery, to, to sell to Polish investors. And the goal is, obviously, once it's Polish investors, the government would have more influence to go after them, right? What can the Polish government do to a company like Discovery, right? Which the implications of this are really, really fascinating to me, which really says, like, how does a foreign government influence media ownership if the media ownership is owned by an American company? Well, Poland doesn't have influence on on discovery, but if it were to force discovery to sell to Polish investors, then you could go after bank accounts or start doing tax investigations or putting pressure in other ways, right? Then you can kind of begin to control the narrative um, much more closely. And of course, this is a tactic both that the left and the right use, have used, right? Uh, Authoritarian governments. Uh, Venezuela definitely used this during uh, Hugo Chavez's uh, reign, um, especially after the coup. Um, so it's it's not just to Hungary and Poland, but it is a tactic that works uh, rather well, and it will likely pass, and it will be a, a test for Joe Biden to see what he can do, what kind of pressures he can do, because Poland sees just a lot of enemies right now. And there is also a, a, a move by Poland to... Um, reduce its compensation to Jewish people who lost their property during uh, World War II. So there is that also going on in the background. I haven't read too much about it, but you kind of see the momentum is right-wing, but nationalistic and authoritarian in many ways. It's a fascinating story. I don't think a lot of people are following, but it has implications both for Europe and the United States, and uh, given that it's a U.S. company, and for Poland itself, Poland is you know wants to be very protective. It has had many enemies, both from the north, south, everywhere. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the implications of this are, which I will follow. Um, but it it it's it's you know it's one of the few times that I'm able to 
step back from my own political ideology and to say, I can see how a company that just wants to make profit also has national security implications, right? That a company can influence the discourse of what people believe or hear or understand about their own country and how when a gut, when a right-wing populist government rules a country, it can manage the discourse that is talked about. And how do you do it? Well, you put you put pressure on them to sell their stakes in in your in your company, uh, in your country. It's a single TV channel, from from what I can tell. Um, so uh, it 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 defies the simplistic understanding that I think both the right and the left, the far right and far left, have about companies are bad. Government is always doing good. In this case. You can see what the government is doing blatantly, politically, right? This is the law and justice party that rules Poland is is now feeling comfortable enough to go after the media, given that they've already gone after the judiciary. So, you know, one step at a time. It's like a puzzle. Very creative. It's a dangerous move. I think it's going to backfire on the government. Uh, I think Joe Biden will make this an issue uh, from my understanding and he might put pressure on Poland and I expect the European Union to also put pressure on Poland not to go down this route. Um, although, you know, the European Union hasn't been very tough with Hungary or, uh, so maybe they aren't going to do anything. So we'll have to, I'll have to check out what's going on over there. And this is probably the most interesting part of doing podcasting where you know, when you have somebody like Donald Trump leave office, it seems like this is back to normal times, right? Except it's not normal times. And, you know, it, it just shows, shows you that, you know, yes, I was podcasting more and outraged all the time about news. But ever since he left, it seems like I'm less outraged about the news. Like this is normal. And so sometimes you just have to embrace it and you have to go out and figure out new political issues that are happening. And in that light, I have to say something about Afghanistan because it's going to be a raging war. It's it's um, it's interesting to see how Afghanistan has played out. And I'll end with my commentary on Afghanistan because I, I think here shows you just how complicated politics has become, sort of gray-looking politics that we have today. And I say that because I say that because Afghanistan was not debated by any of the presidential candidates, not in 2020, not in 2016, not in 2012, in any form that it in any amount that it should have been, given that it's the longest lasting war in American history. And you know, to Joe Biden's credit, this is going to cost him popularity, but he believes he's doing the right thing by removing U.S. military, U.S. personnel, and essentially giving up the government to the Taliban. Well, that wasn't really up for debate, and the agreement was made by Trump, but Joe Biden agreed to it. So there's a, an agreement there and policy that, hey, we're just going to go, and this is the, the right thing to do. And of course, for an establishment politician like Joe Biden to do this, 
is a very interesting move because I think most people expected him not to do this. I think most people expected him not to rock the boat. But see, this is where I remember reading when Joe Biden was the vice president of Barack Obama that he was the lone voice to get U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. And it shocked some people that the guy who had been establishment politician for decades um, was willing to be the voice that says, no, we need to leave. No, we need to pull troops back. We need to go. And I think people, especially those progressives, and I guess here on the more far-right spectrum who don't want war, can actually come to an agreement that Joe Biden is doing something that, yes, Donald Trump signed the agreement to, signed the agreement with the Taliban uh, to leave. And, and I think that's a really interesting change in politics, right? We're, we're not used to change. We're used to just, this is the way it is, and our politicians are elected just to keep it that way. And, and Joe Biden clearly believes it's not. And I, and I have to say, unless somebody can come up with a strategy of why we need to be there for another 20, 40, 50 years, how can, how can you oppose this and, and spend the money for it, right? Because we've spent 20 years, about $2.5 trillion, and what have you gained for it? Well, you know, the Taliban have taken over. People did have 20 years of some, you know, progress in education and, and other things for Afghanistan. But you know what? The, the goal of these type of interventions, you know, everybody's comparing Afghanistan to what the United States did to Japan and Germany and South Korea. And look at how amazing and our troops are still there. You hear this narrative. And what bothers me about it is it was a very different country, okay, with different histories and governments that soon after the United States was there fighting took over and governed and consolidated power over those countries, right? I mean, Germany and Japan had very strong governments, right? So when the United States took over back after World War II and administered the countries, they were able to have elections. They were able to build up a government, but that's because they had governments prior to that. They had the bureaucrats, they had the judiciary, the systems all set up. And so it's a very different uh, comparison to a place like Afghanistan, which has a different history, complicated history, internal conflict, despite governments existing there in the 70s. But there's been, you know, tribal differences and there are uh, oftentimes factions that are fighting each other. And you could see that the, the, it's not even like Iraq, like Iraq in, in America leaving, which I'm not even sure if it did, but it did officially, you know, at least Iraq had, you know, also divisions, but it's able to have a somewhat more cohesive government. So you could see that the government didn't necessarily collapse, but that actually is partially the responsibility as well for Iran who helped uh, Iraq and didn't want that to happen to Iraq. Um, so, you have uh, Afghanistan today basically controlled by the group that controlled the country but is now trying to give a, a Taliban 2.0. Uh, but they control the weapons and they have a cohesive force. And uh, a lot of the warlords will really make deals with uh, the Taliban. And again, the military fell apart. Joe Biden was there trying to tell people, now that the military won't collapse, at least not in the near term. And they collapsed within like 11 days from when they announced the evacuations would happen. 11 days. 
shows you that the government really had no authority. Americans troops was the ones holding essentially the security situation together. And so this is the situation you get. You get from massive amounts of corruption from the top, essentially the president's down. Corruption couldn't hold it together. People weren't getting paid. People were stealing other people's money. It was a, a, a essentially a paper tiger government. Um, and the second the Americans agreed that they would leave, uh, told everyone they would leave, the government essentially collapsed. The president had to flee. I don't know what else to add about that, except that's the situation. And did you want the United States to be there for 20 years so we could install a government? Well, you did. And the government clearly collapsed. This is this is reminds you of a government that you don't get to dictate necessarily the government that a country rules by. The people have to determine that. That's always been my position for everything is the people have to determine that. And if the people don't want the Taliban, the people will have to rise up against the Taliban. And that might actually happen, but that's what you want. You And then you can help the people create a functional government. You know, but I think the responsibility there is of almost all countries, NATO, the United States, the United Nations, everybody should, the neighbors of the country, obviously, should all work together because that is, those are the stakeholders, right? Um, the responsibility for those countries. I, I think that it should be a, a program that unites neighbors who have, well, going to have conflicting interests, but have an interest of keeping the country stable and together instead of having people traveling and fleeing and they're literally, there's an expected car bomb going off uh, within the next day or two in in Kabul, which, you know, that's uh, in, in near the airport. So that's, that's the reality you're going to have. And it's going to be interesting to see if the Taliban can actually secure their power because they're really looking at it from, okay, if we get too moderate, maybe there'll be more factional division. But if they stay too strict, they might upset people, some of the stakeholders in the United States. So it's like they're trying to figure out some sort of balance within their ideology to keep it a cohesive unit, but not alienate too much uh, of all the different stakeholders at bay. So that's that's what politics is come down to. You know, I, I, again, I think the one actor people always forget is can a independent people form a resistance to oppression and i think you have to believe throughout history that yes it is a slow process it is often a process that fails many times but the people must resist the government if that's what they they want to do uh collectively and they need to organize essentially you just it's not enough to just say they wanted you have to organize yourself and resist actively and it might require weapons and and that would remove the taliban uh, because i think the taliban think it's going to be as easy as it was back in 2000 in 1996 to 2001 and the truth is it's not the country has changed it's been 20 years so going there and implementing the ideas the taliban had back in 96 is not going to be applicable to the united to afghanistan in 2011 that's in 2021 right? It's not applicable to 2021. It's just a different era, different people. You've had 20 years of a different sort of government, women going to school, um, people going to universities, record number of people going to record, record number of women going to university. It's a totally different environment than it was back in 1996. You think about it, 96, I was starting high school. So, all right. Well, that, that wraps up my collateral banter episode 91. I will get to 100 and then I will see what I do to the podcast world if I'm going to 
change my format, change my topics completely. But this is called Collateral Banter. Thank you for listening.